Good morning, everyone. It was such a delight to walk into the, <clears throat> the uh, auditorium this morning and listen to the buzz of the crowd and listening to the laughter as well as just the, uh, you getting to visit with one another and enjoy each other's company. It was just a wonderful thing to listen to and to uh, see. I almost felt sorry for John trying to get your attention as he was trying to uh, speak to you about the opening of the service. But anyway, it was just wonderful to listen to as a joy, like I mentioned, to be a part of. In 2004, in 2004, there was an epic film that was produced and directed by Mel Gibson. He entitled the film, The Passion of the Christ. That year, the film, the film itself was the fifth most grossing film of the year. It um, had three Academy Award nominations. It was a film that centered around the last 12 hours of Jesus' life before the crucifixion, which is known as the, the Passion. The movie was an interesting movie in that the way it started, it started with one of the most darkest hours of Jesus' life in a place on Mount of Olives called Gethsemane. I remember the movie as always, almost like it was yesterday. I remember attending it. I remember as I got to the, uh, the movie theater, Edwards 21 at that time, and there were large crowds that were sitting outside of the theater waiting to go into this movie. They were so... Uh, they had heard so much about the movie, and there was this expectation that was to be filled, and they were excited about it, and uh, hundreds of people were there. Some of them were couples. Others were just large church groups that had come to watch this, this movie. As they stood in line and bought their tickets, they entered into the foyer. That day, Lori and myself had gone. We were going to the movie as well, and as we entered into the foyer or the lobby of the theater, there were the concessions, and People were lined up, long lines of people in at the concession buying soft drinks and, and buying bags of, of popcorn, just like they would at every other movie that they had ever attended. There was this excitement about it, and as we began to enter into the theater itself and take our, our places, Laura and I took our place, and as we took our place, I, I noticed the commotion that was going on around me. I was listening to the laughter, the excitement, the buzz of the, the auditorium itself. I could hear the rustle of people reaching into their bags for their, their popcorn. There was just this excitement that was there. I, on the other hand, was a little bit different. As I listened to the commotion, I found myself almost in stark contrast as I sat there and listened to the laughter and listened to the, the talk and the and the the different refreshments being taken, I remember sitting there feeling this sense of dark dread. Because you see, I had I'd read the storyline. I'd read the four accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and I knew that there was no one that was going to come and save Jesus. I knew that Calvary was not coming to Calvary. And that Jesus, the Son of God, would die an excruciating death on the cross. And I knew that he had died on the cross because of my sins. And that, well, that broke my heart. And so I sat there in silence and I listened to what was going on around me. And then the movie began. And as the movie began with this scene of Gethsemane, we were treated to the beginnings of Jesus' life as he was raised in, in Nazareth and and worked in Joseph's carpenter shop. And I listened to the bantering, the playful bantering as Jesus, as he would talk to his mother, Mary, and I saw Jesus in a different kind of, of light. And then the movie began to take a, a dark 
turn. It began to take this dark turn as Jesus would go into the Garden of Gethsemane and he began to experience this anguish that was deep down inside his soul. And then it moved quickly to his betrayal as Judas would come into the garden and would betray him with a kiss. And then they would arrest him. And then he'd be taken to trial, first to Pilate and then to Herod, then back to Pilate. He'd be scourged and, and beaten in what was called the intermediate death. And finally, they would put nails into his hands and into his feet and they would crucify him. And Jesus would die on that cross. And that broke my heart as well. As we watched the film itself and the movie itself, I was cognizant of the crowd that was around me, the crowd that beforehand were reaching into their bags for popcorn, the crowd that was laughing, the, the crowd that was, had this exciting bust, this happiness about them, all of a sudden was transformed, and now the crowd... Well, no one's reaching into their bags. You hear no rustle of bags of, of popcorn. You hear no laughing. There is no talking. There is a silence that is overwhelming within the theater itself. And it became darker than ever before. Except for the noise of the movie coming from the screen itself, what you did hear, what was replaced with laughter was that of tears. And I heard people weeping around me as I myself was weeping. That was... Gethsemane. They, for a few moments, had been transported for a couple of hours through the life of Jesus to those last 12 hours and then finally to the cross of Jesus. And so they experienced on the Mount of Olives and on the Mount Calvary were two of the most momentous emotional and physical and spiritual battles in the life of Jesus was to ever take place. And they were witnesses of that, as I was a witness of, of, of that. You know, as Christians, we, uh, over the years, you no doubt have heard numerous stories and, and sermons and lessons and classes and have read articles. You have been prepared for the Lord's Supper with a lot of times where we gather around the table and we talk about the cross of Jesus in, in detail. But seldom do we pause and think about what had happened on Olive's brow, what happened on the Mount of Olives in Gethsemane itself as Jesus went through this excruciating uh, time in his life. But in it, we see something about Jesus that is a marvelous in that it, Jesus, Jesus' resolve is going to be tested. Would he be able to carry out the mission for which he was born, the mission for which he had lived and came to the earth to die for? This morning, as we prepared for the Lord's Supper, John led us in the song, Tis Midnight and on Olive's Brow. When you think about that song, the song so succinctly describes Jesus' passion in the Garden of Gethsemane that, on that fateful night that is recorded in three of the Gospels, in Matthew, in Mark, and in, in Luke. This morning, I want us to look at Mark's account, if you'll open your Bibles, to Mark chapter 14. There we see Gethsemane in an interesting kind of way. Gethsemane, to me, is one, is one of the most troubling of all the scenes in the Bible, at least it is to me because as I look into the Garden of Gethsemane, I see Jesus in a light in which uh, he is undone, which, in, which he, uh, in which his humanity is truly showcased for all to see. It, but it also shows his steadfast resolve to carry out the Father's will in his life. During the last weeks of Jesus, before his, his trial, Jesus, along with his disciples, will make various trips from Jerusalem over to the tiny town of, of Bethany. 
And in between Jerusalem and Bethany is the Mount of Olives, or Olives Brow, and in Olives Brow is the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus oftentimes with his disciples would stop at that place, and they would stop for the purpose of maybe resting or relaxing. They might have stopped in order to spend some time in prayer, in isolation, in seclusion. But they would stop at that place, and that's probably why why Judas would know where to bring those who would arrest Jesus and where to portray Jesus with a kiss because that was something that they did often at the Garden of Gethsemane. In between this garden and the brow is the Mount of Olives. And in the Mount of Olives, it is this, this interesting place. Before the garden scene, however, prior to it, Jesus, he desires to partake of the Passover with his disciples and because he wants to share with them some things of importance. During this period of the Passover, he is going to remind the disciples of his impending death. He is going to institute the Lord's Supper, which I don't believe they probably fully understood the significance of it at that moment. John records that he'll wash his disciples' feet and tell them to follow his example as being a, a servant. He'll tell them that there's going to be one who will betray him. All those things he has told them at this, this time during the Passover. And then the record says that after the Passover that they, they sang a hymn and then they left to go to the Mount of Olives. And so they left Jerusalem and began to move west across the Kidron Valley that would lead them to the Mount of Olives and to the Garden of Gethsemane. Ironically, when you think about it, you think about the Kidron. Kidron really means dark and murky. And at the bottom of the Kidron Valley is a stream that passes by there, which is below that which is up above. And what is up above is the temple where the various sacrifices are, are made. And the blood of those sacrifices would run down the hill and would mix with the flowing water of the Kidron stream itself. Jesus and his disciples would cross over the Kidron, Jesus knowing that probably on the morrow, the next day, his blood would be flowing from the cross of Calvary for the sins of the world. And so they began to enter into this place called Gethsemane along with his disciples. The garden, it still exists to, today. In fact, eight of the trees that, there are eight of the trees or the trees that are still there even today, which most say they're probably there a century before Jesus entering into the garden. They are still there today. They're huge uh, trees in terms of circumference. They're gnarly. They're twisted looking, but nevertheless, they are there. And if you were to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, it seems like such a lovely and, and quiet and serene place. But on that night, it was anything but that to, to Jesus. The word Gethsemane comes from two Hebrew words, Gat Shimon, which means the olive press. And most say that the olive press was a historical thing that the Mount of Olives or Gethsemane, the olive press, one, at one time in its history, must have been a place where they would gather the harvest of the olives and bring them to the press. And they there would crush the olives and extract the oil from the olives. The picture behind me is a picture of what an ancient uh, olive press might look like. The olive 
press. When it talks about all of process of the process of crushing olives, there are three stages. In the first stage of crushing the olives and to get the oil from it, they would take the olives themselves, they would place them under an extremely heavy stone in a wooden, in a, in a earth uh, a trough, if you will, with a trough around the, the stone itself, and they would place those olives there and they would crush the olives to mush. And the result of that would be some of the olive oil would then go around those channels and down into a receptacle that would catch the olive oil. In the second process of pressing the olives, they would then take those crushed olives, that mush, if you will, and they'd put it inside bags. And inside the bags, they would, they would put the, the crushed olives, and then they would place it underneath the heavy rock. And then the lever at the end of it would have other rocks, and they would put tons of rocks on the other end of it in order that it would put pressure on that mushed up or crushed up olives. And it would extract the majority of the olive oil itself, and it would be called uh, virgin olive oil. In the third process, they would then take those crushed olives once again, put them in smaller bags, and add much, much, much more weight to the lever itself and upon the bags. And it, in essence, would crush whatever remaining oil that was, was there. And so with each step, the pressure was increased greatly to squeeze every last drop of olive oil from the olives themselves. On this dark night, I don't think it was any coincidence that Jesus chose to enter into his passion on the garden of, in the Garden of Gethsemane because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would experience a soul-crushing struggle of his life. Jesus would experience the crushing weight of this mission that was before him that, on that night uh, of prayer that goes on for hours, and during that period, those hours of prayer, the pressure would would increasingly become heavier and heavier and heavier. And like an olive press, here in Gethsemane, the sinfulness of mankind from Adam all the way up to his day, even to our day, would increasingly be placed on him, and he would be feeling the press of the moment. Artists, when they talk about or when they, you know, make um, paintings about the Garden of Gethsemane or all of his brow, oftentimes it's much like the picture that is behind me. Generally, it's a darkened place, but there is always a light somewhere. Maybe it's the reflection of the moon. And Jesus will stand in contrast with that light, and you'll be able to see his features as he looks his eye, lifted his eyes and looks into heaven. But I don't believe it was anything like that on that night. I don't believe there was a light that was there. I don't believe that he was standing upright as he was lifting his heart to God. That song, Tis Midnight and on All His Brow, the star is dim that lately shone. Tis midnight in the garden now, the suffering Savior prays alone. You see, in Gethsemane, you have a suffering Savior that is there. He truly is suffering deep down inside him. And so around midnight, the, Jesus, along with his disciples, will enter into Olive's brow or into the garden. They don't go very far into it before Jesus says to eight of the disciples, remain here and wait. And then it says he takes with him Peter, James, and John, and he goes further into the garden. Then he stops and he tells them, you need to wait here. Be praying. 
be praying that you would not come into temptation. And so he encourages them to pray. And then it says he goes about a stone's throw away, maybe 30 yards away. And in Matthew's account, Matthew says that Jesus, that he falls upon his face. In fact, Matthew and Mark both says that Jesus enters into the garden and he falls on his, his face. It says that, Mark says that he is greatly distressed. The word greatly distressed, if you were to look at it in its original language, means that he is filled with horror, that he's filled with dread about the moment in which he is about to enter into, about what is about to happen, especially on the morrow. I've asked this question of myself, why did Jesus fall down to the ground? Why was his face in the soil of the earth? And the only answer I could come up with is that the soul-crushing weight of the moment upon him would, would be so crushing, that it would be so heavy, so weighty, that he couldn't stand on his own strength. And so now he is prostrate in the garden and he is praying to his father because he knows what tomorrow would hold. Mark, in his account, he says that he said to his disciples that he's greatly distressed and troubled and that, he is, that his soul is very sorrowful. Matthew, in his account, says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And Luke, who is a physician by trade, he adds, Jesus was in agony and that the pressure was so great that he sweat, as it were, drops of of blood like stones being stacked in an olive press in order to squeeze out the last drop of the olive so jesus stacks one word upon the other to describe the increasing pressure that he is feeling in this moment in his life i'm greatly distressed my soul is grieved to the point of of death it's sorrow for the point of of death such agonizing pressure that the blood is squeezed from the pores of his skin and begins to mix with his sweat. The medical term for this is hematidrosis. The doctors say that a person can be under such extreme stress or, or pressure or shock that the pores around the sweat glands become fragile and begin to leak forth blood that mixes with the sweat. The writer of Hebrews describes that night for us. He offered prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. It is midnight in the garden now. And the Savior wrestles alone with fears. But I thought that 11 of the apostles were with him. And didn't he take with him his three most trusted friends, Peter, James, and John? They seemed to be everywhere with him. When anything big happened, they were there. And so he's brought Peter, James, and John with him, mostly probably thinking that he, they will be of assistance as he has to make this huge decision in his life. Will he be able to go through the mission of dying on the cross for the sins of the world? And yet the narrative said that the three disciples are fast asleep. <clears throat> I've wondered what would cause them to sleep. Well, maybe they're sleeping because, you know, it's, a, it's the Passover the day before, and they were so busy. Every day seemed to be extremely busy, so maybe they were tired just because of the busyness of the day, or maybe it's stress. Maybe him, Jesus, talking about his impending death and all those things, maybe it was just so stressful. If, 
you've ever been stressed, but you know, sometimes you just want to relieve stress, you just go to sleep so you don't have to think about it. We don't know exactly why they were asleep, but one thing is for sure, they are fast asleep, and Jesus is all alone now in the garden. The fact of the matter is that Jesus has a decision, and it's a spiritual battle that was probably his and his alone. There's probably no one that could answer the questions or the prayers that he has. Would he? Could he? Bear the sins of the world and alienate himself from God. Understand that when you talk about who Jesus was, Butch really said it really well. Jesus was God in the flesh, 100% God in the flesh. He proved that by his signs and, his, and the miracles and he wonders that he performed. Only God could walk on water. Only God could change water into wine. Only God could heal a person that was blind from birth. Only God could heal a layman or a person with this terrible disease of, of leprosy. Only God could raise Jairus' daughter. Only God could raise Lazarus from the dead. No man could do that. He is fully 100% God, but understand he is also 100% man. Jesus was born of a woman. When Jesus was hungry, he sought nourishment. He sought food to replenish his body. When he was tired, he sought sleep. He went through all the emotional experiences that every human being on the face of the earth has gone through. This was Jesus. And so what you see in the Garden of Gethsemane is you see Jesus' humility on full display. You see everything there is to know about Jesus. You see the God-man, but you also see uh, the man who was God. You see all those in the life of Jesus. So as Jesus was praying like he did every day in his life, had prayed to his father. Here we find him in the garden, praying not once but three times. And in his prayer, he'd say each time, remove this cup from me. He's pleading to God, is there another way? Is there some other way that this can be accomplished without me having to drink of this cup? Jesus was alone. His midnight and from all removed, the suffering Savior, or the Savior wrestles alone with fears. In that disciples whom he loved, he not his master's grief and tears. In the garden, there were three prayers that were offered up to God, asking him to remove the cup. In Mark's account, he says, that Mark says to God, Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. He uses this word Abba. Abba is the most affectionate term that a child, a Jewish child can use to address his, his earthly father. Without any kind of respect whatsoever, <clears throat> the equivalent for us in English would be for us to say to our fathers, Daddy. The Cameroonians over in West Africa, when they offer up prayers on the English side, Speaking in pigeon, when they offer up prayers to the Father, they address him as Papa. A very intimate kind of affection that Jesus is sharing with his Father as he affectionately goes to the Father in prayer, Abba, Father. In Matthew's account, he records the first prayer. If it is possible, let this cup be removed from me, not, yet not my will, but your will be done. He goes back to his disciples. They are asleep and he wakes them up, tells them to pray that they wouldn't come in temptation. Then he goes away for a second prayer. Matthew also says, 
in this time, if it is not possible, not my will, but your will be done. If it is possible, let it go away. If it is not possible, let your will be done. Mark adds the third, says, Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. Remove this cup from me. Each prayer ends with, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is resolute. He wants to, more than anything in the world, to follow his Father's will, but the human side of him knows what's on the morrow. He knows what's coming in his life. Jesus' strong desire is not to drink of this cup. So what does this cup signify? What is it that Jesus looks at when he peers figuratively, if you will, into the cup? Does he see his betrayal with his friend? Does he see the, the trials and the mocking and the people spitting on? Does he see the beatings at the pavement where he is scourged, which is called the intermediate death? Does he see himself on the cross hanging suspended between heaven and earth and those below the cross mocking him and hurling abuse Adam, is that what he sees? In my estimation, I don't think that's what he is seeing in the cup. As terrible as those things are, as ugly as those things are, I think he sees something much more devastating than that. To me, when he looked in the cup, I believe there were two things he saw. The first one was this, a cup full of the world's sin that he would have to bear. Understand that when Jesus came to the world that he came here from the holiness of heaven itself. He had never experienced any kind of sin and now he becomes a man and for 33 years of his life he walks through a cesspool of sin that was unimaginable to God. Walking through this sin and yet in those 33 years he was never soiled by any sin whatsoever. He was four in verse 15 says he is tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. He had no sin in his life. And yet when you look at both the Old Testament and the New Testament, in the New Testament, we know that he's going to bear the sins of the world, that he's going to bear your sins, and he's going to bear my sins. 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter in verse 21 says, God took him who knew no sin and made him sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. In 1 Peter, the second chapter in verse 24, there it says, he bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so those passages of scripture tell us that Jesus is going to bear the sins of all the world and it's going to be a crushing experience. Imagine that, thinking of all this sin being poured out upon the Son of, of God, God's full cup of, of wrath that he would use to crush his son with. When you look at Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, which is called the suffering servant section, in verse 1, it says that we have beheld the arm, or who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And we know that that arm is revealed upon the son because you're thinking about power, crushing power of the arm of God. When you get to verse 5, it says there that he was pierced through for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities when you read down through that section of scripture over and over again we are reminded of the fact that the suffering servant the servant of God Jesus Christ in his passion would bear all the sins your sins and my sins and that something terrible was going to be happening because of that because of that fact so at that moment Jesus on the cross for the first time in all eternity, would feel utter, he'd feel utter 
forsakenness and alienation from God as the cup is poured out upon the Son and the Father turns his face away. You are all familiar with Jesus' words as he hung up on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the human side of Jesus in, in torment as he's being crushed with this weightiness. But it's more than just that. In drinking the cup, Jesus would become the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world and would pay a price far beyond what you or I are able to comprehend. Because in that moment, he is going to be forsaken by God. God's going to turn his face away from him. He had never experienced that. He had never experienced what it was to have sinned. We are so familiar with it because we sin so much, but Jesus had never sinned, and now he's having all those sins, the most ugly, putrefying sins that you can possibly imagine are being poured out upon him on the cross. And then to know that his father's wrath must come down upon him and that he would alienate himself from his son to the point that he had turned his face from the cross and his son was crushing. And Jesus, he knows this. He knows what's coming. He knows that this horror, this dreadful feeling that's within him, he knows it's coming his way as the sin is poured upon him and the wrath and the alienation of God comes. So as Jesus saw this emotional, this physical and spiritual suffering, the human side of Jesus wavered and he asked God to take it away. His midnight and for others, guilt. The man of sorrow weeps in blood. Yet he that hath an anguish now is not forsaken by his God. In the garden, you see Jesus' resolve, a strong resolve. So when you think about Jesus' resolve, his resolve was to do the Father's will. That's what he wanted to do more than anything in the world, even beyond his self, was what, was what is it that the Father wills? What is it that the Father wants of me? If you were to ask people, how would you sum up the life of Jesus in a word? Some of you might say, well, I would sum up the life of Jesus with the word love. John 15 and verse 13 says, greater love has no man than this, and a man laid down his life for his friend. Jesus was the embodiment of loving you and me and loving the world and loving his, his Father. Another word might be obedience. Philippians 2 and verses 6 and following says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so maybe those two words sum up the life of Jesus on both hands, that he was love, but he was obedient. Yes, he loves us and he loves the Father, but he wants to be obedient to the will of God. And so Jesus' resolve is to do the Father's will. So the question would be, well, where does he get this strength from? Where does he get this humility, this, this courage, this, this strength to drink of the cup? Well, understand that Jesus has not yet bore the sins of the world, so he is presently in the garden in sweet fellowship with God. There's still that intimacy that exists between the two. Jesus is not forsaken in the garden. Make no mistake about it, he is not forsaken in the garden. That will not take place until he hangs on the cross and bears the sins of the world. He is not forsaken in the garden. God does not take the cup away from Jesus, but in his most crucial moment in his life, when he needs God the very most, 
God is going to be there for him as he drinks the cup. Luke's recount, as which reminded us in Luke, the 22nd chapter, in verse 43, it says, Now an angel from heaven appeared, strengthening him. What did the angel say to Jesus? I don't know. How did he strengthen him? I don't know that either. But what I do know is that Jesus is resolved. When he leaves the garden, there is a comfort that's overcome him. There is a peace that is there that is so resolute that no longer is the sorrowful and grieving taking place, but he knows what he's going to do. I love the way the song says, Yet he that hath in anguish knelt is not forsaken by his God. Tis midnight, and from either plains is born the song that angels know. Unheard by mortals are the strains that sweetly soothe the Savior's woe. And so Jesus has his answer. I don't think it's the answer he is wanting, but he has his answer. And so he gets up from his prayer, and like I said, with the calmness, he goes to his disciples and wakes them up and says, it's time to go Rise up, the one who is going to betray me is at hand. It's time for me to meet that faithful hour, which is my passion. It's incredible when you think about the Garden of Gethsemane and how you reflect upon it. When I think about the Garden of Gethsemane, like I said, it, it blows my mind. It boggles my mind to think about what Jesus was willing to do. To think that Jesus was willing to die on the cross for your sins and to die on the cross for my sins. The fact that Jesus would enter into a garden and that he would sweat, that he would, he would suffer so much, he'd be so grieved that he would sweat drops of blood for people that don't love him, the pe for people that don't care for him, for the vast, vast majority of people who will reject him, for men who will put nails in his hands and his feet, for people who will spit upon him and, and mock him, for men who would beat him within an inch of his life, and to love them that much, it boggles my mind. And yet that's what Jesus did for us. And so when you think about the cross of Jesus, it's so in, incredible. In the garden, Jesus was able to see past the cup and all of his brow. How was he able to do that? How could he see past the brow and look to what is before him. Well, Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. He sat down at the right hand of God. What would cause him to go through the garden and then to the cross? And the answer was the joy set before him. Do you know what that joy was? That joy was me and you being saved. That's the joy he saw. That's why he was willing to, to suffer so much anguish and torment because he saw you being saved and he saw me being, being saved. And he saw himself seated at the right hand of the Father in full fellowship. And he saw something else. He saw his resurrection. He said, but how could he have seen his resurrection? If you recall earlier in John's account, there it says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and raise it again. I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken over 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus knew that he would conquer death. But that didn't mean that he wasn't in anguish and torment over the prospect of bearing the sins of the world and the wrath of God and alienation for that time 
period. So what does Gethsemane mean to you and me? Well, Gethsemane is really talking about distressed moments in life. Many people experience Gethsemane moments. Most people experience Gethsemane moments, moments in our lives when we are struggling with deep down distress or sorrow. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it is that we have to make some life-changing decision where the pressure seems almost unbearable. We feel the weight of life come up on us. So how does a person deal with Gethsemane moments in life? Well, the answer is the same way Jesus dealt with his. Jesus took all of his cares and all of his anxieties and all of his sorrow and all of his grief and he entrusted it to the Father and to the Father's will knowing that God knew what was going to happen, that God would work things out. And so he is completely obedient to Father. So how do we see past? our Gethsemane moments. Well, 1 Peter 5 and verse 7 encourages to cast all of our anxieties upon God because he cares for us. Or Philippians chapter 4, verses 6, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. How was the angel able to strengthen Jesus? What were the words, what were the strains that he heard that are beyond comprehension that strengthened him to go through with the, the mission. Or Hebrews 13 and verse 5, who says that Jesus will never forsake us. Maybe God takes care of our Gethsemane moments by sending an angel to us, to minister to us. My guess is that if it did happen, you wouldn't believe it and wouldn't know it. But nevertheless, there are those angels that assist. I remember talking to Ed Holmes some years back, and I was teaching about angels, and I think I did a three- or four-part series on angels. And, and in it, I said, you probably wouldn't know if an angel did assist you. And Ed came up to me and says, well, yeah, you could. And I said, how would you? He goes, well, you just ask him, are you an angel? And he can't lie. And so I said, okay, so you go up and ask him, are you an angel? And he says, yeah, I am. And you'd say, get out of here. You're not an angel. Or maybe we find strength as we read God's word and we see the comfort that is there and the promise that is, is there. Or maybe it's the action and words of our friends that get their arms around us and hug us and, and love on us. Last Thursday was Bob Spriggle's memorial service and there was a lot of hugging went on that day and a lot of encouraging words that went on that day. God has not promised to take us out of our Gethsemane moments. He's promised to be with us in the midst of our Gethsemane moments. We just simply have to trust in him. And like Jesus, we too can look past all his brow as we think about our own resurrection that is promised to us because Jesus Christ was resurrected. So what are your Gethsemane moments? We know what Jesus' were. What are yours? And how would you like to respond to it? Sometimes life can become extremely heavy because of sin in our lives. God doesn't want us to live life like that, guilt the lives. He wants us to be free. And so if we're Christians and maybe we have gone in a wayward direction, away from God, maybe it's time to turn back. Gethsemane promises that we can have forgiveness, and so does the cross. Or if you're not a Christian, but you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and because of your belief, 
you're willing to repent of your sins, acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. And like they, those on the day of Pentecost, those 3,000 who were baptized into Christ for the remission of their sins, you can do that very thing this morning. Whatever you need, once you come out together, we stand and while we sing.